Our scripture passage this morning is taken from the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 5, uh, verses 33 through 39. Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to uh, turn to that passage in the Word, and I encourage you to leave your Bibles open as I preach so that you can test the things you are hearing against the Word of God, and I will be reading, and the passage is uh, indeed printed in the worship guide on page 10 uh, if you uh, forgot to bring your Bibles. It is a responsive reading. You'll see uh, the words in bold at the end of the passage, and I ask that you would respond at the end of the passage with those words in bold. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now... At Canal St. Lean's Presbyterian Church, where I pastor, just outside of Charleston, West Virginia, we have been going through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, If I were back home today, I believe this would have been my 87th sermon on Luke's Gospel. I'm getting ready to start chapter 22 next Sunday, Lord willing. But uh, to take one of my sermons from that series and sort of preach it to you, uh, I think it does require a little bit of background and context. Uh, Let me just briefly set the stage of what this uh, passage we just read, that the context in which it sits, uh, this text this morning comes right on the heels of Jesus calling Levi, Matthew, to be one of his disciples. So this is very early on in the public ministry of Jesus Christ. And as Levi hears the call of Christ and responds and immediately leaves his old life to follow Jesus, that evening at his house, he hosts a rather large party, a large feast. And most of the guests were friends of Levi. So they were fellow tax collectors and other uh, what society looked at probably as being unsavory people. The Pharisees would have considered these party guests to be sinners. And at that feast, at that party, the Pharisees come up to the disciples of Jesus. Again, this is early in his earthly ministry. So they are not yet really in that mode where the Pharisees are directly confronting Christ. They come up to the disciples of Jesus and they ask him this question. Why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? They wanted to know how this supposedly great rabbi could associate with such a crowd. And Jesus overhears this. And he replies to the Pharisees, somewhat famously, it is not the healthy who need a physician, but rather the sick. 
He says, I did not come to call the righteous, but rather to call sinners to repentance. This is one of the earliest uh, statements of Jesus concerning his, the purpose of his earthly ministry. I did not come to call the righteous, but rather to call sinners to repentance. And so our passage this morning, Luke leads us to believe, happens within the same event as that party, that feast being thrown at Levi's house. And it shows the heart of the, of the Pharisees, really. The Pharisees are the ones speaking, the beginning of verse 33, and they, and they said to him, that's the Pharisee saying to Jesus. Um, and it shows that instead of the Pharisees being humbled in that earlier exchange by Jesus Christ, instead of them recognizing that they themselves are not truly righteous, but are sinners who need to repent and embrace the Lord by faith. Our passage today shows the hardness of their hearts. They now respond to Jesus and they try a a, a different angle of attack against him. They change the subject away from who Jesus feasted with, now to the theological question of why does he feast at all? Why doesn't Jesus fast? The Pharisees begin in our text this morning by saying the disciples of John, that is John the Baptist, the disciples of John the Baptist, they fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours, Jesus, eat and drink. They want to know, okay, Jesus, you feast with sinners to call them to repentance. The question we have now is, why do you feast at all? Why do you and your disciples not do as we and our disciples do? Why do you and your disciples not do as John the Baptist and his disciples do? Who do you think you are, Jesus, that you don't believe that you need to make regular practice of fasting? Now we need to understand a little something about the Pharisees, who they are, what exactly they are asking Jesus when they challenge him on this issue of fasting. First, understand that although the Pharisees mentioned John the Baptist and his disciples, who they were no fan of, by the way, they did not really like John the Baptist, uh, although they mentioned John and his disciples and seemed to lump John and the Pharisees together in one group, the reality is these two groups of people fasted for, dairy, uh, for very different reasons. Both groups are what we might call today ascetics, meaning that both John and his disciples and the Pharisees and their disciples made use of severe self-discipline in their religious lives. But they used that severe self-discipline for different reasons. John and his disciples used regular fasting as a severe self-discipline as a means through which to prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah. And remember, that was John's given role. John is, in a sense, the last of the great Old Testament prophets. Uh, and his role, his role was to prepare the way for the coming Messiah. Fasting was one way through which he and his disciples prepared the way. The Pharisees, on the other hand, used fasting as a way to flaunt their outward religious righteousness. 
It was their way of showing everyone around them just how holy and pious they were. Now understand, fasting was not in that day, and it is not today, a sin. But the motivation behind fasting can be sinful. And the Pharisees, they had sinful motives behind their fasting. In fact, they were extremely legalistic about it. The reality is the Old Testament religion only commanded one official day of fasting in the life of Israel. That was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. But some of you may know the Pharisees had this whole system of man-made traditions, oral traditions, which they flaunted as the law of God. It was an It was an oral tradition which they elevated to the same authoritative status as the written law that God gave to Israel through Moses. And part of that man-made pharisaical law was that they would fast twice a week. And they expected every pious and truly religious Jew to do the same thing. Beloved, this is really a great example of what true legalism is. I think we throw that word around often. We, we are very quick to call people and label things legalistic. In fact, this is a disturbing trend that I've sort of noticed over the last several years. It seems to me that any time a, a brother or a sister in Christ comes to us and does exactly what they are supposed to do as a fellow Christian and admonish us, rebuke us for certain behavior that is not consistent with the Christian life, Many times, people have a gut reaction and respond by saying something like, well, you're just being legalistic. We have to be honest about this, beloved. We have that initial response, I think, because many times we don't like what they're telling us because we know it's true. Brothers and sisters, understand this. A fellow Christian rebuking you or challenging you in areas of your life that are not in accord with, with the word of God, is not legalism. That is supposed to happen. We are supposed to admonish one another. We are supposed to help each other grow in holiness. We're supposed to do it out of love. And just because we may not like any given admonishment does not mean that the person giving it is being legalistic. The Pharisees are showing us what true legalism is. True legalism is when you take your own man-made laws and traditions and you elevate it to the word of God. Legalism is even sometimes taking your own spiritual convictions and elevating them to the law of God. You make it, in your mind, a binding commandment for all of God's covenant people. The most, obvi- you know, the most obvious, the most cliche example of this, of course, is drinking alcohol. There are some Christians who, for good reason, are under the conviction that they should not drink. And having that conviction is not legalism. It might be a true spirit-given conviction for them. There may be many brothers and sisters who have to avoid alcohol for any number of reasons. For the sake of their own growth and sanctification and holiness, this is just something that they cannot partake in. But if that is your conviction, you become legalistic when you try to take that conviction and make it God's binding law for every other Christian. 
The Bible does not forbid drinking alcohol. It forbids drunkenness. We know that, and we know that there is a difference between the two. In fact, in our passage today, Jesus himself speaks of drinking wine. And yes, it's real. Alcoholic wine, just as alcoholic as our wine is today. It was the good stuff. A Christian has no right to take their personal conviction about drinking alcohol or anything else on which the Bible is silent for that matter and make it gospel law, striving to force all other Christians to live according to that conviction. That is what legalism is. And beloved, understand, legalism really is a false gospel. It's a works-based righteousness. It's at the heart of the false gospel that the Pharisees believed. It's a works-based righteousness which is ready to condemn anyone else who does not share in what ultimately is simply a personal conviction. That's what the Pharisees were doing with fasting. Their conviction to fast was not a sin. Their motives may have been sinful, but their conviction to fast was not a sin. Their elevation of that conviction to the status of a God-given law, that was a sin. That was legalism. In fact, they really stood in contrast, I think, to the disciples of John the Baptist on this topic. The disciples of John, they too fasted regularly, but they were not legalistic about it, at least that we know of. We have no record of John's disciples being condescending towards others, expecting them to do exactly as they did. They weren't walking around telling other Jews, thus saith the Lord, you should be fasting just like we are. Pharisees were trying to enforce their own legalistic demands upon not only the Jews, but even more amazingly, in this moment, they were trying to enforce their own legalistic demands upon the Messiah himself. The Word incarnate, Jesus Christ, the very author of God's law in the flesh. And Jesus, of course, is having none of it. He has none of it, and we see Jesus respond here with a perfect, logical answer filled with unquestionable wisdom. He turns to the Pharisees, and he asks them a question. Can you make the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Here, what Jesus is doing is drawing upon the great tradition of a, of, of a Jewish wedding feast. You have to understand, within ancient Judaism, the bride and groom did not do what we do today. They didn't just have a wedding ceremony on a Saturday, followed by a reception, and then go off on their honeymoon. Instead, the newlywed couple would stay home for what equated to a basically a week-long wedding feast. It was, in essence, a a week-long open house filled with celebrations and great feasting. And Jesus equates himself here with the bridegroom of such a feast. The guests of this week-long celebration, as long as the bridegroom was with them, the guest would stay and party and feast. It was no time to fast. When the bridegroom was there, it it was a time to celebrate. And here was Jesus the Word incarnate, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, living and dwelling among His people. The bridegroom, in that moment, was there among His bride. How is it that God's people could possibly fast 
during such an amazing and wonderful time. Now we have to recognize, in his answer to the Pharisees, Jesus is saying more about himself than what probably we here realize. First, he is claiming to be God himself in the flesh. He does this by using the imagery of the bridegroom. The imagery of the bridegroom, this imagery of God being a bridegroom and his covenant people being his bride, this is not new imagery. It is imagery that can be found throughout the Old Testament. So common was this imagery that when the Pharisees and the disciples heard Jesus give that response, they would have immediately recognized what Jesus was saying about himself. Everyone there who would have overheard this exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees, would have realized Jesus in that moment was claiming to be the Lord. That use of Old Testament imagery was not a mistake. He knew what he was saying. He knew who he was saying it to. But there is a part of his response that was definitely perplexing to his disciples. There was a part of his response which many people probably did not know what Jesus was actually saying. And that is the part where he speaks about being taken away from his disciples. He was speaking here, Jesus was speaking here about his coming crucifixion and the days that would follow. It is there at the cross when the bridegroom would be taken away from his disciples. And yes, his disciples after the crucifixion would spend the next few days following the cross Fasting while the bridegroom was gone. They would fast as a sign of their grief and their sorrow. But that grief and sorrow would turn again to great joy, great feasting at the resurrection and Christ's ascension into heaven and the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now all of that was not yet revealed to his disciples, but it's interesting. This early on in the public ministry of Jesus Christ, it's interesting that Jesus had a sense of what was coming in his life. And not only does he have a sense of what's coming, he's already thinking deeply about the cross that lay ahead of him. He knew that the time of fasting was soon approaching, but right at that moment, it was the time to feast. Now, in my mind, it would have been interesting to hear how the Pharisees responded to Christ's answer to them. I don't know if they were left speechless or if right away they were ready to charge Jesus with blasphemy because they knew he was claiming to be Yahweh. But this is something Luke does not tell us. We'll have to wait till eternity to find the answer to that question. But Luke does tell us that Jesus, in his rebuke against the Pharisees, offers up to them two parables. Two parables which are part of this response to the Pharisees about why he is not fasting. The parable of the garments, the parable of the wineskins. Short parables. And both parables deal with the same theme. They deal with attempting to mix the old with the new. Now, we have to understand how these two parables connect to what Jesus is speaking about here concerning fasting is not immediately obvious. So we have to do some deep diving to see exactly what Jesus is proclaiming in this moment. So first, the parable of the garment. No one tears a piece from a new garment, puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Now I know today we don't tend to patch 
garments, it's very convenient for us to, if we have a piece of clothing that rips, just go out and replace the piece of clothing. But in those days, it, of course, was not that simple. We know there weren't stores on every street corner, and people were very poor. And so many times garments had to be patched. But who in their right mind, I don't know, maybe there are some hipsters out there who do this, who in their right mind would take a new garment and cut a patch from it and sew it onto an old piece of clothing? To do that would ruin both garments. The old would have a patch that does not match, and the new would have a chunk cut out of it. The point, you cannot mismatch the old with the new. Likewise, the parable of the wineskins makes a similar point. No one, Jesus says, puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled, destroying the skins and losing the wine. Now, wine in those days were kept in containers made of animal hide. And new wineskins were much more flexible and they could expand. Old wineskins were much more rigid and stiff. They could not expand. And so when you had new wine, wine that wasn't quite at its peak fermentation, you did not want to use old wineskins. You wanted to use a new wineskin because as the wine continued to ferment, it would expand. And if you put that new expanding wine into an old wineskin, then the wineskin would burst. And as I said, you would lose both the skin and the wine. Try to put the new into the old, and everything is ruined. So here's the point of both these parables. Here's how they connect to the issue of fasting, which the Pharisees raised. First, Jesus is saying that, particularly in his day, I believe he's saying that fasting was better suited for the time before he came. And why is that? Because many times in the Old Testament, fasting was an expression of sorrow and longing. Sorrow and longing, beloved, they really marked the religious life of God's people in the Old Covenant. Yes, there was joy. Read the Psalms, there's great joy. But the entirety of Old Testament religion was geared towards sorrow and longing. Sorrow because of sin. Sorrow over the fact that things were not as they are supposed to be. Sorrow because sin had put a distance between the bridegroom and his bride, between God and his covenant people. But also longing. Longing for the coming of the Messiah. Longing for the coming of the Christ who would fully and completely and finally deal with all the sins of all his people. Longing for the Lamb of God who would come for the great high priest who would offer up himself as a perfect and final sacrifice which would remove all the sins of all of God's people from them forever, longing for the coming of the living temple, the one who would be God himself in the flesh living among them. And when Christ came, he was the fulfillment of, the old, of all that the old covenant pointed towards. He is the one who did fulfill the religious ceremonies of Old Testament Israel, the feasts, the sacrifices, the rituals of the Old Covenant worship life. They were all fulfilled in Christ. And Jesus, in his coming, in his coming was ushering in the new covenant, an age of gospel fulfillment. And so Jesus is saying, 
Why, doesn't his, why don't his disciples fast? He is saying it would be, in a sense, inappropriate to fast in sorrow and longing now that he has come and was ushering in the very kingdom of God in their midst. Beloved Jesus, in these parables, he was declaring that the old was passing away, that the new has come, that his day was, as one commentator put it, the day of explosive joy. The Messiah was there to bring full and complete salvation for his people. So do not cling to the old now that the new is coming. The old, as the author of the book of Hebrews declares, was rapidly fading away. But then secondly, in his response, so that's how these parables connect with the idea of fasting, especially in the new covenant. But secondly, Jesus is also saying in response to the Pharisees, as a rebuke to them. He's saying to them that they cannot fit him, they cannot fit Jesus, into their old, legalistic, joyless traditions. And here I think the commentator, Pastor William Hendrickson, said it best. He said, it's not that Jesus offered something that was entirely new, in the sense that it amounted to rebellion against the essence of the Old Testament teachings. No, indeed, in that respect, the teaching of Jesus was old in the best sense of the term. But the Pharisees had buried the law of God, the good law of God, by the way. I hope you understand the law is good, and it's a treasure for us. The Pharisees have buried the law of God beneath their man-made traditions. These traditional teachings have been passed from generation to generation. It was to these old rabbinical interpretations and applications of the law that the Pharisees of Jesus' day were clinging. They preferred stuffiness to fresh air. That was their downfall. To put it another way, beloved, Jesus was saying to the Pharisees, the gospel of the kingdom of God would not, it could not, be mixed in or crammed into the molds of their man-made religions. Understand this. The Pharisees would have said, they would have said, beloved, if you ask them, they would have said, we are looking for the coming of the kingdom. The Pharisees would have said, we long for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the new covenant that the prophet Jeremiah spoke of. But now that it was there, in their midst, they couldn't see it because they were clinging to their own oral, man-made, legalistic traditions. And know this, beloved, Jesus could not, and he would not, be mixed into their legalistic ways. This was the downfall of the Pharisees. This is why they would not, this is why they could not see Jesus for who he is. Why they could not rejoice in the work that he was doing in their midst in his earthly ministry. And I think there's a very practical application for us this morning in this, beloved. The reality is many people try to mix Jesus in with their own man-made legalistic traditions. Or worse, many people try to make Jesus or try to mix Jesus in with their old lives. And it plays out in so many ways. Some try to make Jesus synchronistic with other religions. They try to make Jesus compatible. He should be compatible. Compatible 
with the teachings of Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, or in American evangelicalism, something that's far more rampant in our own camp. They try to make Jesus compatible with New Age teachings and practices. They simply try to make Jesus a patch upon the garments of worldly false religions and what they are left with is complete ruin. Other people try to make Jesus or fit Jesus into godless philosophies and worldviews. Modernism, postmodernism, Marxism, humanism, nationalism, fatalism, naturalism, racism, spiritualism, or whatever other ism grips our culture at any given moment. They all have their origins, beloved, in the wines, in the old wineskins of a godless mindset of a depraved human race. And Jesus bursts those wineskins apart, leaving the one who tries to fit Jesus into the old wineskin, both without the skin itself and more tragically, without Jesus himself. You cannot do it. You can't be like the Pharisees and try to fit the Messiah into your old wineskins of man-made, legalistic traditions, philosophies, whatever it is. You just cannot do it. You cannot fit Jesus and his gospel of the kingdom into those wineskins. You can't try to patch Jesus onto the garments of your old beliefs or your lifestyles or even your old self. You can't drink of the old wine while trying to drink of the new wine of Christ. That's what he's saying here. And Jesus warns in the closing verse of today's text, beloved, that the one who continues to drink of the old wine never even desires the new. If you, if you consider the old as good, then you aren't truly desiring the newness of life in Jesus Christ. And that's the tragedy of trying to fit Jesus in with all these things or trying to, you know, Make Jesus a patch on your worldliness or your old life. If you do that, if you keep trying to drink of the old wine, you will lose your desire. You will lose your longing. You will lose your taste for the new wine of Jesus Christ. You can't simply try to appease Jesus without making any real dedication and sacrifice to follow him. You know what that would be like? Imagine if in the passage which comes before this text today, Levi responded to the call of Jesus, not by leaving his tax-collecting booth immediately, but instead saying to Jesus, okay, I'll follow you, but let me keep my old job here where I exploit and rip people off. Let me keep my old job. I love this life. I love the wealth and the comfort that my job brings me. I can do both. I can live my old life while also following you, Jesus. I can fit you in. Christ would have never had it. He will not share his glory, beloved. He will not simply be a patch cut out of a new garment, stitch upon the garment of our old life. He will not be new wine crammed into the old wineskins of our lives. And if that's what you're trying to do with Jesus, you need to realize Christ will eventually burst you apart. The challenge is for you today, is this how you are attempting to come to Christ? Is this what you're doing with Jesus? Are you clinging to the old while trying to fit the newness of Jesus into it? It will not work. The new cannot be contained within the old. There's only one way to receive Christ, by repentance. 
That means a forsaking, a forsaking of the old and embracing him, the new, by faith alone. Trusting in who he is, trusting in his work for you and his life, his death, his resurrection, his continued intercession on your behalf, this is the only way to receive and have Jesus Christ. Any other way will not do. He will not be a patch on your old life. He will not be contained within the old wine skins of your old self. You cannot cling to the old while trying to receive the newness of life that Jesus brings. Now, brothers and sisters, let me just close with one final brief point of application. It deals directly with the issue of fasting. This issue of fasting, and we've talked about Christ's sort of theological response to the Pharisees, why he does not fast, and how fasting, at least in his day, was better suited for the Old Covenant and all of that. But this issue of fasting raises an interesting question for the church in our age, the church today. Are we today in a time of feasting, or are we in a time of fasting? On the one hand, the bridegroom is no longer physically with us. This would imply a time of fasting. And like Old Testament Israel, we live in an age of sorrow and longing. We sorrow, or we grieve, because we live in a world which is still stained and ruined by sin. We live in a time of longing as we look forward with expectation to the coming of the bridegroom, Jesus Christ. All of this would imply that our time, our age, is an age of fasting. And yet, on the other hand, we too live in the age of fulfillment. We live in an age of the new. Jesus has come. And through his finished work of redemption, as well as through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we know that sin and death, and the devil have been defeated. We know that for all who come to Christ by faith, our sins are removed from us. We are set free from guilt. We are set free from the tyranny of the devil. And through the Holy Spirit, we are in Christ, and Christ is in us. And so again, do we fast, or do we feast? What is our age an age of? The answer, beloved, of course, is both. We fast and we feast. That is the age we are in. That is the season we are in. A time for fasting. Yes, fasting is appropriate from time to time. And while it's true that the New Testament does not appoint for us a mandated day for fasting, it is appropriate for the New Covenant Christian to fast. Jesus himself did it. He may not have done it as regularly as the Pharisees expected him to, but he did fast. The issue in our text, again, it was, it's not really with fasting, but instead with the legalistic demands of the Pharisees. We should, and I hope you do, beloved, make use of fasting today. We do it to seek the Lord. We do it in preparation for the second coming of the Messiah. We do it, yes, to grieve our continued sin and its effects upon the world. We do it to pursue a deeper communion with the triune God. We do it to meditate upon the living bread, Jesus Christ, remembering that man does not live by physical bread alone, but by every word. 
Fasting is a spiritual discipline that still today has an important role in the life of God's people. But beloved, it does not define our experience. We also feast. And we should feast. As the people of God, we should feast in a way in which no one else on this planet feasts. We feast, brothers and sisters, because the new has come. The kingdom of God is a present reality. We feast because we live in an age where we can look back. We can look back on the finished work of Christ and have the full assurance of our salvation. Those Old Testament saints, they looked forward, made use of types and shadows, They knew and they believed and trusted in the promises of God, but they were always looking forward, always through shadows and hazes. We look back with perfect clarity upon what Christ has done for us in the cross and in his resurrection. We of all people, beloved, have the greatest cause for feasting. And whether you realize it or not, and I think hopefully most of you do realize it because I know for a fact that Troy reminds you, every Sunday morning, at least he did for the four and a half years that I was here, whether you realize it or not, every week, God has appointed for us a day of feasting. The old, you know, it's interesting, the new covenant doesn't give us an appointed day of fasting. We do have an appointed day of feasting, the Sabbath day, the Lord's day. This day is set aside for a great feast. That's what this gathering together every week ultimately is. A feast for God's people. When Troy says that our aim is to set before God's people a feast every week. That's, those aren't just words. It means something. It's real. It's true. This is a time when we gather together as one body. Come together physically and spiritually. Rejoicing as the blood-bought people of God, to be able to come into the presence of the thrice holy God through Jesus Christ to worship, to glorify, and to enjoy Him. Every week, beloved, this gathering is a feast where we know that our God, through the ministry of the Word, through the ministry of the sacraments, through the communion of the saints, is meeting us and feeding us and nourishing our very souls. This feast, you guys say amen a lot more than people in West Virginia. Would you believe that? I thought I'd get down there and they'd be like, amen. Those West Virginia, those West West Virginia Presbyterians are more stoic than I am. Shock me. This is a feast, beloved, in which Jesus Christ himself, the good shepherd, is feeding his sheep. He promised to do it. He's doing it here. A feast in which God's people are renewed, refreshed, restored with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A feast through which God is sustaining us in this life. And it's a feast which is just a small foretaste. It is just a small foretaste of the great final eternal feast to come, the marriage supper of the Lamb. <laughs> Listen. It is. You know, that's the tragedy of people claiming to belong to Christ who consistently neglect the gathering of God's people every week. 
God is offering them a feast. And they're choosing to starve. They're choosing to starve their faith. They're choosing to starve their souls. And then they wonder why God seems far away from them. It's a tragedy when God's people do not come to this feast. And you have to wonder, if you're not desiring to come to God's feast now, what makes you really think you're going to desire to come to the eternal feast? That's what this is. It's a foretaste of the marriage supper of the Lamb, the great eternal feast which will put an end to all fasting. The feast that we as God's covenant people, as the bride of Christ, will indeed celebrate when our bridegroom returns. A feast that will not last for a a week or for a year or for 30 years. A feast that will last for eternity. Brothers and sisters, that day is coming. It is going to happen. You can be sure of it. There is no chance it's not going to happen. And every week as we gather together for this Sabbath feast, we are indeed reminded and again get a foretaste of that day when we will all together feast in the house of Zion forever. So beloved, until that day comes, I encourage you to embrace both feasting and fasting. And may our Lord give us the grace to embrace both. Embrace embrace both the fast and the feast until our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, is again among us. Not only through his spiritual indwelling through the Holy Spirit, but he will be among us in his own crucified and risen body and blood. Let's, Let's pray together.